Genesis, the book of Genesis. Why would some people in 2022 want to take time to study Genesis? Why is this book important? Why does this book matter? Now here's the thing, even if you're pretty new to the Bible, there's a good chance you've heard something about Genesis. Most people, whether they're Christians or not, have heard something about Genesis or the creation story. They have some rough idea about this particular book. They may not know anything else about the rest of the Bible, but they have some idea of some of the things that happen in the book of Genesis. Well, Genesis teaches us about beginnings, beginnings, all right? When you think of Genesis, think about beginnings. It teaches us about God uh, who was before the beginning, but it also teaches us about the beginning of creation, about the universe. It teaches us about the beginnings of the human race. Humanity. It teaches us about the beginnings of sin. And it teaches us about the beginnings of salvation and God's plan for salvation. All right, so we've got God in Genesis. We've got creation. We've got humanity. We've got sin and we've got salvation. Okay, those are some big topics. So it would make sense that you would want to study Genesis if Genesis talks about those beginnings. Now, here's what you got to know about Genesis. It doesn't answer every question about those things. And sometimes people want it to do that and wish that it would do that, but it doesn't. It does talk about these beginnings, but it doesn't answer every question. It doesn't answer every question about, that we have about existence, but it lays the, the groundwork for understanding the nature and character and attributes of God and our relationship to him. So that's pretty important, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, with Genesis? That's pretty important to know those things. I like what um, uh, the commentator Kent Hughes, the way he described it in these two little sentences. He says, what we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, and about salvation begins in Genesis. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. Right? It's pretty important. It, it's, it, it builds it's these pillars to understand the rest of the Bible. Now, there are certain things that when we get to the end of Genesis, you'll still be like, well, what about this? And what about that? And I didn't hear about this or hear about that. Right, it doesn't cover everything, but it gives us this framework for the rest of biblical theology and the rest of the biblical story. It all starts in Genesis. And Genesis is a really amazing book. It's, it is one of the books that reminds me of the divinity behind the scripture. When you read some of the things that we're going to read and study some of the things that we'll study, it will just, it'll, it will blow your mind. You'll be like, oh my goodness, this was written thousands and thousands of years ago. People couldn't have done this. This had to be God. God had to breathe this. God had to inspire this. It's definitely one of the books that does that for us. Uh, we could bring together an army of, of the most brilliant minds and talented authors of our era, a, a 
a crowd of them and bring them together and they would not be able to conceive and articulate a story that compares with this ancient text that was written by a couple of people thousands and thousands of years ago. But here's the thing about Genesis. It will inspire us. It does me when I read it, um, but it also will frustrate us. It will encourage us and confuse us. It will thrill us, it will teach us. Genesis has a lot in it, all right? That's why I'm, if you can't tell, I'm excited about doing Genesis. And how are we gonna approach it together? Because here's the thing about Genesis. You might say, okay, well, if you're so pumped about it, why didn't you start out with Genesis as a church? Well, I'll tell you, Genesis is a little intimidating from a pastor's perspective. Now, if, if, if you are thinking, you're like, oh, I know about Genesis and I know that there's 50 chapters in Genesis and I know how long it takes Brett to go through a chapter of the Bible <laughs> and I may not live to see the end of Genesis, right? 50 chapters, we've only got 52 weeks in a year. You might be thinking, okay, uh, if I base it on today, because by the way, we're only gonna get to two verses today, <laughs> like two verses, 50 chapters, we're gonna be here for 10 years, right? That's part of why Genesis is a little bit intimidating to me because there's a lot. It's big, it's a big book. But this is how we're gonna approach it together. There are 50 chapters, but the way that we're gonna pace it is, is a little different. We're gonna start slow, okay? Like I said, today, two verses and only two verses. And we're gonna take our time through the first, the early chapters, the first 11 chapters. What we'll actually see is in Genesis, there's a big break after chapter 11. And, and so the first 11 chapters will be kind of slow, but then from chapters 12 through 50, we'll really accelerate. And on some weeks, like today, we'll look at just a little bit. And then other weeks will come in and I'm gonna read you a couple chapters. We'll kind of move quickly, especially in those, those chapters that are very narrative, where they just tell a, a full story. When we get to the life of Joseph, we'll see there's a lot of chapters on what happens in his life. And so we'll move through those things a little more quickly. All right. This is going to be, though, a great chance for you to put the spiritual practice of Bible study and meditation that we talked about a few weeks ago into practice. This is a great book for you to be able to read along with as we go through. And as I just told you, for the next two weeks, we'll be in Genesis 1 and 2. Chapters one and two. So you can be reading those for the next couple of weeks, just those two chapters. Um, this is a good book for you to, to read along, read ahead, and really let the book shape you and your understanding of God. And I also um, want to encourage you to bring your Bibles, okay? I have in front of me a paper Bible. I know that we've, we've gone to digital Bibles a lot. That's fine too. But if you can't take notes in your digital Bible or you can't underline things and mark things, then I encourage you then to either bring a notebook with your phone or whatever it is, or go back to a good old paper Bible that you can write things down into, all right? This is one of those books where it's very helpful as you go through it and study it to make little notes because there'll be people and names and places and things like that that you're, if you don't take notes and write things down and circle and underline and all that, you can get lost in the big story, okay? So this is a great one of those to kind of really approach it in that way. And I also, like I've already done, I wanna encourage you guys to be involved in a life group. Um, this, this will be a lot of fun. Genesis will pop up some questions that will provide some really good conversations um, in life groups. 
And there'll be a lot of things that you'll get to in here um, that we'll get to together that I won't answer. There'll be certain things that you'll be like, oh, but what about this? What about that? I can't get it all. I won't, I won't be able to. I'm not even gonna try, all right? Write those questions down, bring them to the life group. Let your life group leader answer them. Um, that'll be great, because I'm not leading a life group this session. So that's, that's good. Let them figure it out. Um, it'll be a lot of fun, okay? All right. Let's talk a little bit about some background of Genesis. Although Genesis is the first book in our Bibles, it is not the oldest book in our Bibles. That may be, come as a surprise to some of you. The oldest book in the Bible is actually the book of Job, okay? The book of Job. And it's, it's way later in the Old Testament. The book of Job, Job lived in the time of the patriarchs. And if you don't know who the patriarchs are, don't worry, we'll get to them in Genesis, all right? And he lived back in that time. And his story, the story of Job, was actually recorded way back when. The reason we know that is because historians, as they go through and they study the language in the oldest texts, the book of Job is a very, very ancient form of Hebrew. And a lot of the things that were developed and the way that language um, uh, smoothed out over time, that's where we find the book of Genesis and Exodus and a lot of these other books. But Job is a very ancient even version of ancient Hebrew. All right, and so that's part of how we know that Job is the, actually the oldest, the oldest book that we have in the Bible. Genesis wasn't written until a long time after Job had already lived and died quite a while later. And it was written by one of the primary characters in the Bible. Genesis was written by Moses, okay? And Moses is, is probably a very familiar name to you in the Bible. Moses wrote Genesis. In fact, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In, in the Hebrew world, that's referred to as the Torah or the, the law of Moses, all right? So the first five books that we have in our Bible were written by Moses. Now, we know that Moses wrote Genesis not only because it was passed on through Hebrew tradition, uh, but also Jesus himself confirmed that Moses wrote those books in John chapter five. We actually have a recording in the gospel where Jesus refers back to the Old Testament law, the, the law of Moses, and he says, Moses wrote these things for you because of this and because of that. And so it's, it's confirmation is the way that we see it, that it's confirming the historical tradition that it was Moses who wrote those, those books. Now, to some degree, the Torah, those first five books, were, they were revised or at least added to by others. Here's how we know that. Because in the very last book of the Torah, in Deuteronomy, in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses dies. And it records there in the last few verses of that last chapter, all of the events around Moses' death. So at least there were two people that had a hand in writing the Torah. Now, it may have been Joshua or it may have been someone who came later after Moses that just filled in that last little bit. 
We don't know, but there's at least um, some amount of, of authors, of more than one author, Moses and probably somebody else. But Moses was the one who wrote the bulk of this. And so Moses, we believe, is the one who wrote down Genesis. And it's thought that Moses wrote those books, those five books, the Torah, while he and the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And, and if you know that story, remember the, the Israelites had gone into captivity in Egypt. Moses was raised up to release them from, from captivity and all of the plagues of Egypt and all that. And then they went and wandered, right, in the desert for 40 years. And in that time of wandering, that's when we think Moses wrote down these five books, all right? And that would have been in the late to mid 1400s. Now, when we say 1400s, it's 1400s BC, okay? Way over here, BC. If you think 1400s, what do I remember? Oh, Christopher Columbus, 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, okay? That's AD. All right, so here's Christopher Columbus way over here, 1492, go all the way back to the time of Jesus, zero, then go back 1400 more years, 1400 BC. Okay, that's where Moses is, okay? Columbus, Jesus, Moses, way back here. Now, that's way back there, 1400s, but the 1400s are still way past creation and the very beginning of all things, okay? So Moses obviously wasn't there, way back there, at the beginning of creation. But what we believe is that God gave Moses a radical revelation in regards to the beginning of creation. That's how he writes Genesis. He wasn't there, he didn't live through it. But we believe that God spoke to Moses and gave him very clear things to write down during that time wandering in the desert. In Exodus 33, 11, it says this about the way God and Moses interacted. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible were, were given directly to Moses with God himself overseeing the process. All right. Some of this stuff that we read, we're like, how on earth would he know that? He couldn't. He didn't just come up with this grand idea. The way it happened was God spoke it to him. And so it was through Moses that God gave his covenant law, the, the law of Israel to the people of Israel, but he also gave them background information to understand what had brought them to that place in history. Now, Genesis wasn't intended to be a, a textbook on astrophysics or organic chemistry. It wasn't meant to be a detailed scientific account of creation, which is frustrating to a lot of people. That's what we want. We want to know, okay, God started with this atom or he started with that or he created matter this way or he allowed these things to form this, this way and this came to that and that was this way. He didn't do that. This wasn't the, the intent. The point of Genesis, the reason God gave this background information was to reveal who God is, who we are, the problem of sin, and to point forward 
to his plan of salvation and our need for a savior that would one day be revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the story not only of the beginning of creation, but gives a glimpse, just a glimpse of the arc of human history. All right? Now, as is fitting for such a beautiful masterpiece as Genesis is, Moses begins this book with an unforgettable phrase. All right, I could tell you to look at it, but you probably already know it, okay? The opening line of Genesis is probably, and this is just me saying this, it's probably the best known piece of writing in human history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. People know that line, right? We may not know anything else. We can't maybe not be able to quote some Shakespeare or who knows whatever else in literature, but most people know the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, uh, the beginning of that, that phrase is, is actually just three Hebrew words, Bereshith, bara Elohim. I hope that's impressive to you because that's about all the Hebrew I know, all right? But that's it. Three little Hebrew words, Bereshith, in the beginning, bara, created Elohim, God. That's, that's, that's all that is said there. And then the heavens and the earth. What's he saying that God created? The things that we know, the things of earth, the things on earth, and even the things beyond what we know, the heavens, the universe, the skies, the stars. All of that, the first verse in the first chapter in the first book of the Bible it begins with a declaration that God is the being from which all things have their beginnings. God is the beginning. All right, so if you're gonna pull one big thing out today, that's what we find in Genesis 1.1. God is the beginning. Now, those themes that, that I've talked about and I'm gonna to continue to talk about until you have them in your head too, the themes of God and humanity and sin and salvation, they aren't all explained all at once, okay? And like any good story, many of the things that we're gonna learn are unfolded as we move through the scripture, as we move through Genesis. But God is at the beginning. But although he's at the beginning, we don't know anything about who he is. All this verse tells us is God's there, he's at the beginning, and he's the one creating. But we don't know anything about who he is. We don't know about his character. We don't know about his nature. But even in this first phrase, we actually find some interesting clues about God. All right? Now, the word that Moses uses here for God, Elohim, if, if you study some of this out, it's, a, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I know this is gonna get very school-like for a second. We're gonna talk about some grammar, um, but don't, don't check out, all right? It won't be long. This word Elohim is a plural word, all right? That means there's more than one. If you remember singular and plural, okay? It's a plural word. It's a plural masculine word. All right, so what does that tell you? It says it's, it's male 
and there's more than one. It's like if we said men, okay? Men, there's, there's, they're male and there's more than one of them, okay? That's the word Elohim. That's interesting. You're like, huh, has, did Moses already make a mistake here starting out here on, you know, the first three words of the Bible? Right? Because what happens next though is the word bara, which is the word for created, is singular. And it's also male. So it's, it's, it's as if it's saying he created. So what we have here is we have this singular creator who is plural making all things all at once. The interesting thing is this singular plural God will later even speak to himself in the plural when he says, let us create humanity in our image. He stays plural, but it's one creator creating. So what's happening here? Well, what appears in verse one is that God is a community within himself. We don't understand it yet, but there's some plurality of God, but he's also individual and he's one. And that's not gonna be unfolded until later in scripture. Theologically, Christians believe that this points toward what we know as the Trinity, okay? The Trinity, one God in three distinct persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now here in the very beginning in Genesis, we're gonna see God the Father, we're going to see the Spirit even here in verse two, but the Son won't appear quite yet. It's gonna take time for the whole story to unfold. You don't get to that till season two, you know? It's one of those cliffhangers that you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? And, and you don't understand it yet. But when Jesus appeared in, in the New Testament, we see the, the, the complete picture of the Trinity come into, into shape. In fact, the, the apostle John, who is one of the 12 who had followed Jesus and walked with Jesus during his whole life, who, who saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration when God the Father lights Jesus up and he's glowing and then Moses shows up and Elijah, you remember this story? I've told it to you many times. And that all takes place and then they hear the voice of God the Father speak and say, this is my son, uh, listen to him and all of that. John experienced all that. Then John saw all the miracles of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. John was there when Jesus was crucified. John was there when Jesus was rose again from the grave and saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw all of that. He then was there when Jesus ascended into heaven well, when John sits down to write his gospel, John remembers back to Genesis 1. And John says, how do I describe to people who Jesus is? And he says, oh yeah, it was already written for me in Moses, in Genesis 1.1. And he takes that in mind. And as he sits down to write his gospel, listen to what John says in John 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning, sound familiar? was the Word. And you're like, what? The Word? And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's foreshadowing or what, what's, not, what's the opposite of foreshadowing? Backshadowing to, to chapter two, we'll see in a little bit of the light and the dark. And then he goes on in verse 14 and he says, and the word, because you're trying to say, well, who is this word? What was the word? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John now fills in the gap that we find in Genesis. That is who the we are in the plural, the Elohim. It's the father, it's the son and it's the spirit, all right? So back to Genesis, God in all his glory was there in fullness, in community at the beginning of all things, the beginning of all things. And in verse two, it says, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The universe as we know it is not eternal. It's not eternal. Modern science agrees with that, that it has a beginning, that this universe that we know and that we've tried to study and understand for all of these years, it's not eternal, all right? And what the Bible teaches us is that God was before there was an earth, before there was a universe. And what was there, the way that, that Moses here is trying to, to frame up words to describe this pre-beginning, this before all things, is he, he, he describes it as this emptiness, this nothingness, just an abyss. He's reaching for words here. Okay, we're talking about things outside of time and space. How do you describe something that's outside of time and space? How do we even comprehend this? That's what he, the way he tries to describe it. It's, it's this, this nothingness. I like the way Eugene Peterson, who um, in his paraphrase of the, the, the Bible, the scriptures, he writes, he describes it this way in the message. He says, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, and inky blackness. Are you, get, you get what's happening here? We're trying to describe, it's, it's something, it's nothing, it's, it's hard to explain. And when, when Moses writes there in Genesis 1-2 that the face of the deep, it was an expression of this fathomless, endless ocean. But what do we see in this nothingness? The Spirit of God is among the nothingness hovering over this, poised, ready. Now here's what you have to understand and, and, and listen to this. What we just read, that verse, Genesis 1-2, that's the amount of information that we're given in Genesis about the time before time. That's it. If that's not very satisfying to you, join the crowd. <laughs> yeah, that's all we get. There was a nothingness. 
And nothingness doesn't even really describe the nothingness, the abyss. That's it. There is no statement about some God before God. There is no statement about the creation of the uncreated one. It doesn't say this is how God came into being and then he started our universe. There's none of that. And I realize that we don't like that. But what you have to understand is our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite. And I know that may not satisfy, but you're not gonna get a satisfying answer. A finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. But this is what we know, before all things, God was. God is the beginning. And here's the thing, in the thousands of years of human philosophical contemplation and scientific exploration, we have not devised or discovered a better explanation than those few words. The best and the brightest among people who have ever lived have invested themselves in trying to decode this and figure this out and understand this. They have devoted their lives to try to say, well, there's gotta be an answer. There's gotta be something. There's gotta be something we can figure out or explore or discover. But so far, the best description that humanity has is that before all things, God was. And here's the other thing too. You know about Genesis because you realize that Genesis is one of those books of the Bible that is often under attack from non-believers. Atheists that say there is no God would love to attack Genesis. An agnostic that says, well, you can't know if there is or if there isn't. We just don't know. That's what an agnostic is, all right? Maybe there's a God, maybe there's a not, we don't know, all right? But the staunchest atheist or agnostic does not have another solution. They don't have an answer either. It's not that I'm only giving you the Christian answer. There isn't another answer. The atheist begins with a presupposition that says, well, there can't be God. So they work on this, you know, work trying to create an explanation apart from God. And you know what their conclusion is? Well, we don't, we don't know what it is, but, but we know it can't be God. So all we can tell you is no matter what it is, it's something else that we can't figure out, but it can't be God. Why can't it be God? Well, because we decided that it, there can't be God. There is no God. Well, what's the answer then? Well, we don't have one, but it's not God. That's their answer, all right? And the agnostic approaches it a little bit differently. They say, well, we can't discover God if he existed. Now to that, I agree to a point. All right, to an extent. But here's the thing, we don't claim to have discovered God. That's not what Christians claim. You might think that, and some of those people think, oh yeah, you arrogant Christians walking around telling us how everything is. We don't claim to have discovered God. We believe he chose to reveal himself to us. It wasn't our brilliant scheming that we figured out this big elaborate thing that we can now explain. No, what we say is actually there is a God and he revealed it to us. We don't believe that Moses made up a story to explain God to us. We believe God gave Moses a story to tell. Do you see that? 
Do you understand the difference there? That's important. And the story of God as revealed in the Bible is a story of our God who gives. We will see this over and over and over. It's one of the first bits of understanding the nature and character of God. God is one who gives and he has given us this explanation. And even before creation here, we see him poised, ready to act, his spirit hovering over this nothingness, ready to bring order to the disorder, to bring fullness out of emptiness, a God who is a creator. And it's from this place that the Christian worldview begins. And here's the thing, if this is true, if God is the beginning, then our lives actually have an aim because we have an anchor point to begin from. This is why it's very depressing for the atheist. The atheist that really tries to go back and figure it all out The philosopher that says there is no God, they go all the way through the process and say that there's just a nothing and a nothing and we mean nothing and after this there's nothing and before this there was nothing. Ah, there's nothing, why even live? It's called nihilism. That's how a lot of philosophers end up, (laughs) all right? But if that's not true, if there is a God that is outside of time and space, if there is a God who is at the beginning, then there could be a purpose, a meaning, to all this madness. There could be an aim, a a focus, an end goal. And that's what we believe as Christians. There is a God at the beginning and our lives do matter. There is a purpose, there is a plan. And the same God who was before all things is the same God that we worship today. Think about that a little bit. The same God that was before all things is the same God that we gather together to worship. Try to comprehend for a minute then the size of that God. You know, there's the the old song that says, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? God's got the whole universe in his hands. And that's not even, that's a, you know, that's limited too, because that's a human kind of understanding for us. God is so vast, he's beyond this universe as we know it. He's so big that we can't comprehend him. Or, Or try to picture the power of God. A God who can call all things into existence from nothing. We can't get our brain around that. And we we get we lose track sometimes. It's like we try to think about it and we're just like, oh, forget it. I, I give up. And we sometimes though, when we gather together in worship like this on a Sunday morning, I go through my routine, I get up, I come to church. It's like, yeah, we're coming to worship God. We're coming to worship God, guys, the God of the universe. And sometimes we can lose sight of who God is because we try to make God in our own image, this small, weak, fragile little God who's like us as people, but he's not. He's so much bigger and grander and great. He's outside of the limits of time and space. He's beyond all things. And when we come to worship God, we should be coming with awe and wonder. I took a few minutes this week as I was just thinking about Genesis and thinking about creation 
to just try to sit and ponder the size of God. And it doesn't take very long till you're just like, oh, I can't do it. I, I don't get it. And then I think, wow, but he's revealed himself to us and we get to worship him. That's an amazing thing, an amazing opportunity. God is beyond our greatest ideas and our words fail to describe him. Our imaginations can't contain him. Yet even in his grandeur and his majesty, he makes himself known to us. And that also tells us something about God and about us, doesn't it? I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up and, and we're going to shift now pretty significantly. We, we're gonna move from the farthest expanses of creation and beyond creation down to communion this morning, down to a tiny cup and a little wafer. We're talking about things that are beyond the edges of the farthest galaxy away from us. That God who has chosen then to reveal himself, not only in the big, but also all the way down to the small, the, the, the smallest things, a tiny cup, cup and a simple wafer. But here's what this is. This is a practical reminder of the God of the universe God's presence in the flesh. Stick with me here. The band's up here. They're gonna find their instruments. It'll all be okay. Think about this. The God beyond the universe loves us. And we gather together in worship and we gather together for communion. It's be, we're being reminded of that very thing. That the God of the universe would come down in the flesh, contain himself, limit himself to come and to give himself for us. I know we don't really get that. It's a big thing, but it's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. And God, the same God that was before all things is not dead. He's not lost, even though sometimes it feels that way when we look around at the world around us. God's doing just fine. He's in control, he knows what's happening and he knows each one of us. He cares for each one of us. And he came in human flesh and he, he gave himself, he gave his life for ours. Listen to what it says in Colossians 1, 16 to 20. It says this, it says, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Listen, as it goes on, he, is the beginning. Who did I tell you today was the beginning? God is the beginning. Who am I telling you now in scripture is the beginning? Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We worship the God at the beginning. We worship the God all the way at the end of the cross. And the same God, the same Jesus that will return and wrap up this whole thing of history all together at once. That's who we worship and we gather together to worship today. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. And that's what we're gonna offer him now. So these guys are gonna lead us in a song of worship. We're gonna pass out the elements, communion. Everybody hold on to them. I'll come back up and we'll take communion together as a church. Let's worship together now.